This podcast series is brought to you by Not Defined by Endo, providing support to endometriosis patients, their loved ones, and anyone suffering from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by Totesphere, sustainable merchants in the UK who sell products that are good for you and good for the environment. Hello, and welcome to the seventh and final episode of Endo 101. To say I've had a great time would be an understatement. I hope you have had as much fun as I have. Feel free to go listen to previous episodes if you want a holistic understanding of what endometriosis is. Today, we are going to discuss a case study on a woman who was diagnosed with endometriosis and the treatment route that her doctors took and how she managed to get her quality of life back. This is all hypothetical, by the way. We want you to know that even if you or someone you know has been diagnosed with endometriosis, you do not remain without hope. There are many treatment approaches that your doctors can take, considering your individual case, and you can regain your quality of life back. Most importantly, please never forget that you are not alone. There is an army of women, fellow sufferers, doctors, researchers, and advocates fighting for and with you. With that said, let's get right to today's conversation. Welcome back, Tom, to the seventh and final episode of Endo 101. Thank you, Tenny. It's flown by. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know, and it's been an absolute honor to have you on the show, and it's been so much fun. I hope people have enjoyed it as much as I I have. And I wanted to ask you how you have found the series so far. I know I've been throwing lots of questions at you so (laughs) has it been okay hope you have absolutely it's been great I think it's been what I hope is a really useful exercise for people to listen in and understand a little bit more about the condition I know that so many of our listeners would have read about the condition before know a lot about it but it's good to put everything together and you've certainly asked all the useful the sort of poignant questions and and got to the bottom of things so thank you Tenny keeping me honest thank you so much so we have talked about so much on this um, series and one of the things we said was everyone is an individual and there's you know loads of different treatment options that people can be aware of and people need to know that they one are not alone two they still have hope and three there's a whole you know army of people you know fighting and advocating for them so today I want us to start with I want us to talk about a case study so we'll talk about a woman who you know went to the GP for whatever reason we'll go through it and then I'll have my questions and we can just run through and see how and just this is almost like an advisory session in a way that just gives people an idea of what happens in a real life scenario absolutely yeah okay so let's begin so we're going to use you know this name well this is not a real name so this is just a fake name (laughs) I'm going to start now with a woman called Miss Jasmine White, who is a 32-year-old full-time student currently completing her PhD. She leads a busy lifestyle and she has an active social life. One day, she presents to her GP requesting some advice regarding her period pain. She tells you she's concerned that she's been experiencing pain associated with her recent periods, She has felt some pain between the periods too and has noticed some spotting. And before this recent onset of pains, her periods were pain-free. 
Miss White explained earlier to you that until recently she had pain-free periods and has been experiencing pain between her periods as well as some intermenstrual bleeding. For this reason, you advise her to make an appointment to see her doctor as you suspect that there might be a secondary cause to her dysmenorrhea. So now I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about this particular case study. What kinds of investigations would Jasmine expect to be done or to be requested by her GP during her consultation? Hmm, cool. So I think, first of all, the GP is probably going to ask her lots of questions, just going back about what the pain's like, when specifically it is, anything it might be related to, to try and get to the bottom of, of what the cause might be. So the, the symptom we're causing, talking about here with the painful periods alone would be dysmenorrhea, of which there are a few causes, one of which is definitely endometriosis. So that I would hope would, would be on the GP's sort of list of things, what we call in medicine, differential diagnoses. What I would say that's a little bit unusual for endometriosis is it's is quite new onset pain by the sounds of it. In a woman who's 32, what we often see with endometriosis is the periods have always been painful, or there's always been an element of pain between periods. It hasn't necessarily come out of nowhere. So the GP will probably want to ask a few other questions, some potentially quite probing questions. You know, you, you, the doctors always, especially when we're thinking about gynecological things, you know, can ask some quite seemingly invasive questions about sexual history and things like that, previous sexually transmitted infections, which would all be relevant to the condition. Because, of course, one of the things that can cause painful periods and spotting between periods can be pelvic infections. So I think that would definitely be something the GP would ask. And probably one of the earlier investigations they'd want to do, actually, depending on the risk factors that Jasmine had, they might want to do some pelvic swabs. And that would include things for chlamydia, gonorrhea, that sort of thing. Most often, it's a rule out test. We're just doing this to confidently say, look, it's not that right, we can move on. Because of course, it is that, and, you know, it does happen occasionally, then we can treat that and we can make sure we track partners and, and, and make sure that's all settled down. So it's an important test to do, not necessarily because we think it's going to be positive, but it's good to have that layer of reassurance to say, look, absolutely, we don't need to worry about that as one of the causes of this. And then we can focus on things like endometriosis. So other conditions, it could be, we talk about dysmenorrhea as being a symptom either of something else like endometriosis, fibroids, pelvic infection, that sort of thing, or it can be simply a manifestation of primary dysmenorrhea. It is simply a fact that periods for some people are painful without there necessarily being an underlying cause. The process of menstruation, the, 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 the lack of blood supply to some of the the womb during menstruation and the production of some inflammatory things in the endometrial environment, which we know a lot about from our previous discussions of endometriosis, when it's outside the womb, can cause pain and cramps and contraction in the womb muscles. So it could be just dysmenorrhea in and of itself, primary dysmenorrhea, of which there are still lots of treatment options. But I think drilling into the history, the GPs probably, I would hope, asking some slightly more directed questions about whether Jasmine's having painful intercourse, whether Jasmine's getting significant pain between the periods, asking a little bit more about just how Jasmine's pain's affecting her life. Because actually, I think when we've talked about this previously, pain for one person is a walk in the park for someone else and, uh, and vice versa. And people with endometriosis certainly can get very, very used to pain. And actually you battle on regardless and, and, a, and a 10 out of 10 pain for someone else is a, you know, a two, it's a good day for you. So has she, for example, had to take time off school and work with this pain in the past? 
when she was younger and her periods were starting, was she often, you know, a little bit more troubled by periods than her peers? Although she might say, look, this is relatively new onset pain. Is it actually something that has been creeping on throughout her life that could be due to something like endometriosis? Mm. Exploring all the other sorts of symptoms that it could be. Asking about cervical smear history is important, particularly if she's got bleeding in between periods. We know that smears are, are a screening test for risk of developing cervical cancer. So definitely something important. Again, most commonly, it's just to rule that out, to confidently say, look, we don't need to worry about this. Let's move on and think about other causes, but certainly important to do. Yeah. Asking about bowel movements. We know that deep infiltrating endometriosis particularly can cause this terrible symptom we, we describe as dyskesia, dreadful pain around the time of going to the loo, going for a poo, and often feels like just severe constipation can be worse around the time of the period, but often it's there irrespective of the cycle. Also thinking about other gastrointestinal symptoms, IBS type symptoms, nausea, often around the time of the period, again, intermittent loose stool and constipation is the bowel very irregular, which could be as a result of IBS in and of itself, but of course we know is linked to endometriosis and has an association with it as well. And we talked about how, you know, how it's affecting Jasmine's life more generally. Yeah. Before we get to more investigations, so we talked about doing some, some pelvic swabs, the way they would do that is do a pelvic examination. A lot of women would have had smears in the past, and to do that, you do a speculum. So it's exactly the same thing. It's a speculum, which can be a bit uncomfortable, but usually isn't painful in and of itself. And the speculum, you'd look at the cervix, and the GP would be able to say the cervix look normal. There's no unusual discharge. They can do their swabs if they want to. And probably the more important part of the pelvic examination in this context is feeling for the womb and cervix, seeing if there's any tenderness on moving the womb, seeing if there's any evidence of scar tissue, which we know can be caused by endometriosis, can also occasionally be caused by infection. Um, but particularly if it's very tender, particularly just behind the womb, we know is actually a very good marker for endometriosis. It's, it's quite a sensitive test. Wow. Other things they'd be feeling for is any large lumps and bumps, particularly fibroids, which are more common than people know. If we looked at everyone in great detail and did a, a very comprehensive ultrasound scan or an MRI, we might find fibroids in the majority of people actually huge majority of those don't cause any symptoms and aren't anything to worry about but occasionally they can be implicated in things depending on what the gp finds they would talk about different management options i don't know if, if that's your next question jenny yes um well that's one of my questions but i think i have one before that but i have yeah, one. Please, no, carry on don't let me ramble i'll talk for ages <laughs> otherwise <laughs> that's okay I wanted to ask, you mentioned um, doing physical examination. So mm. um, to check, like, maybe, I guess, the womb and um, to see if there are lumps or bumps. Is this internally or is it just on the top of the womb? How does this work? Yeah. So ideally, it would be a combination of both. They would always have a feel of your tummy first from the outside, relatively low down, just over the pubic bones, sort of underneath the tummy button and feel for the size and shape of the womb. Most wombs outside of pregnancy, you shouldn't really be able to feel very easily. Sometimes in very slim women, you can feel them. But if the womb's enlarged, it's often a sign of something else, whether it's fibroids or indeed what I should have mentioned very early on is to, to do a pregnancy test. If someone's experiencing abnormal bleeding, if they're experiencing pains, it's always good to ask that question. Have you missed a period? Are you pregnant? We'll assume in this scenario that Jasmine isn't pregnant. And then the pelvic examination is feeling internally, so in the vagina, and then feeling on top of the tummy at the same time. And what the doctor's trying to do is feeling between their two hands 
for movement of the womb, where the tenderness is, and whether there's any lumps and bumps as I described. Particularly right. important is internally, just behind the womb, um, you might remember when we talked about the uterosacral ligaments yeah. as being an area that deep infiltrating endometriosis can particularly affect and causes some nodularity there. And if the doctor were to feel tenderness just behind the cervix and nodularity in Jasmine, who's got <laughs> pelvic pain, then actually they've gone a long way towards making what we hope would be quite an accurate diagnosis. It's tricky though. And actually a pelvic examination isn't the most straightforward examination to do. It can be quite uncomfortable. It's certainly a quite invasive test. And it's not something that you should ever feel pressured into having if you don't feel comfortable. It is definitely something useful that we, that, that we can learn from it. There's always a reason for doing these sorts of tests. So rest assured, it's not done willy-nilly. Particularly useful be looking at the cervix to rule out anything if she's getting bleeding in between the periods. Certainly to do those swabs if there was an indication for them. The, the, the GP would always have a chaperone in the room, or you'd definitely be offered to have a chaperone in the room to make you feel a little bit more comfortable. And they can also help the GP. Having said that, it is, it, it's not always the best environment. We know that GPs are under huge pressure at the moment with 10-minute appointments. As a gynecologist in secondary care, we get the luxury of a 45-minute appointment for a new patient. So we've got vastly more time to do these sorts of assessments. In a rush clinic, after the GP's taken a full history, that's going to take quite some time yeah. to then yeah. go through a pelvic examination, actually, which does take time. You've got to feel comfortable in the environment. I think if you'd rather make another appointment with the GP or say, actually, can I book a double appointment with you next time? These are all useful things to think about, perhaps, before even going to the GP. It, it, that would make you feel more comfortable. And the GP would definitely rather that because they have time to get to the bottom of your problem. GPs hate 10-minute appointments. Might be good for some things, but the vast majority of things, particularly a new patient with a complex condition, they really need to get to the bottom of it. But yes, and in, uh, the pelvic examination is predominantly an internal examination. But you are feeling on the surface of the tummy at the same time. You can still learn things from feeling on the outside. And if you don't feel comfortable having an internal examination, certainly in the general practice setting, then absolutely fine to, to decline that. No pressure at all. But there are definitely useful things that can be learned. Okay. I think you preempted my next question, which was, I see <laughs> that's perfectly fine. You mentioned that um, GPs don't have a lot of time. And mm. I think it's very important that when you're going into your um, appointment with a GP, considering the short amount of time that you should be prepared. So what kinds of questions would you advise her to ask at the GPs and how would you say she should prefer? prepare for this consultation i know you already mentioned potentially saying can i have a double appointment but yeah. what are the questions that she could be asking yeah so it's a bit, a bit much to sort of tell the the patient that you need to know to book a double appointment i think it's fine to make an appointment to start with and then actually if you find that there isn't enough time or you know the gp might suggest to you shall we in the cool light of day next week make a double appointment for this and see if we can really get to the bottom of it i wouldn't worry about that i wouldn't feel kind of fogged off that they're saying oh get out you know I'll, I'll deal with you another time actually it's a really useful thing to do in terms of preparation i think just having a careful think about the symptoms before you go having a bit of a um a thought ahead of time because we know that they're going to ask the history of it they're going to ask how it's affecting you they're going to ask what your priorities are about it you know what are your priorities are you first of all desperately worried that it might be something like a pelvic infection because you've got a new partner or something like that are you desperately worried that it might be something you know terrible like cancer because you've had a family member who's been affected by that or actually you not worry you just want that reassurance and you, you want to be confident that you can carry on taking ibuprofen and paracetamol and get on with life or are you really wanting to get to the bottom of the diagnosis and worried about things like endometriosis because that's almost certainly something that you would be worried about if you're listening to this podcast mm -hmm. so 
The other useful thing, what the GP might often recommend at the first appointment, but if you've done it already, that's even more beneficial, is keeping a symptom diary. Particularly, that's going to be useful to try and link any symptoms you've got to the menstrual cycle, which we know isn't the be-all and end-all with endometriosis. And in actual fact, the chronic pelvic pain, the pain that's independent of menstruation, is a slightly better indicator of endometriosis than pain around the times of period on its own. But it's definitely useful to have that symptom diary. You can also record things like how bad the pain was, how it was affecting you, any associated symptoms, things like painful intercourse, things like changes in bowel habit or, or, or pain going to the lavatory to put the whole picture together. And if actually you've got a symptom diary, you've thought about the, uh, the symptoms you've got, you know the priorities you want in terms of care. Frankly, you've done all the work for the GP. And <laughs> when you go there, they ask you the questions. They you know, might have, of course, they definitely have other things to add. They can talk about management options. They can do investigations. But if you've got cut and dry cyclical symptoms, painful intercourse, pain going to the lavatory, and you, know, you, you, you think it might be endometriosis, they'd be hard pushed not to refer you to secondary care then and there. So I think just having that preparation ahead of time, if you think that is going to be useful, is definitely something helpful. Okay, that's amazing. So you just mentioned referral to secondary care. What would you say we should expect or what would should Jasmine expect as a process from, you know, being at, going to the GPs, talking about mm. your symptoms and what you're experiencing and all the way to maybe getting secondary care and being uh, diagnosed with endometriosis? What's the process like, especially, I guess we would say in the UK since we're here? Yeah, absolutely. That's really all I can talk about. And, and, and different countries have different healthcare systems where actually it's quite common for people to have a referral straight to a gynecologist, for example, rather than having the concept of general practitioners. But GPs are fantastic. And, and the first thing to say is they might be able to manage everything all on their own. Not everyone necessarily needs a referral to secondary care. So depending on the initial investigations, depending on how the, uh, the consultation went and what sort of a symptoms were, were discussed, and what priorities Jasmine had, uh, the GP might do a few different things. They'd probably recommend some pain relief because pain is not a symptom that people should suffer with in silence. It can definitely be helped. Although we talk about pain relief as simply masking symptoms, that's what it's doing. But if the pain is getting you down and it's such that you can't live your life, then absolutely take the pain relief. Rest assured that pain relief does not mask anything really sinister, really dangerous. So never be worried about taking pain relief. I can understand reticence to want to take it all the time. I can understand reticence to want to take it so you you, know, you don't get an idea of what the symptoms are like and it's reasonable to, to, to have experienced it so you know what to tell the GP, but actually you don't need to suffer in it. So, so pain relief is definitely useful. First line, things like paracetamol and a whole class of medications we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Most commonly things like ibuprofen, which you can get over the counter. They might prescribe you some slightly stronger non-steroidal diclofenac or naproxen, for example, or there is one called methanamic acid, which is very useful if periods are both painful and heavy, because it actually treats both at the same time. All of these can be taken together with paracetamol. They work in different ways. They're very safe to take together. There are a few cautions with non-steroidals. So, and the GP would, 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 would be very good at asking you all these questions. Things like if you have asthma, there can occasionally be a cross-reactivity between, between non-steroidals and make the asthma a little bit worse. People who've had a history of stomach ulcers or ulcer, uh, gastric irritation often 
probably can still take them actually, depending on exactly what the history is. But you would certainly need some sort of anti-acid medication, which I appreciate is a whole nother pill, which you know makes you rattle a bit, but it can be useful. And also occasionally kidney problems and things can be um, a little bit tricky with non-steroidals. So the pain relief option. The other thing the GP is probably going to discuss with you at this stage is fertility aspirations, You know, whether it's the here and now, whether it's in the future. And the reason why that question is a useful one to ask straight away is one of the mainstays of treatment, whether it's primary dysmenorrhea, so simply painful periods without an underlying cause, or indeed if it is related to endometriosis, hormonal treatments work very well. We've discussed the role of this in previous episodes, thinking about the effect that estrogen and progesterone have on the endometriosis, and they have the same effect on the endometrium, which is in the lining of the womb, same tissue type, but elsewhere. Uh, I won't go through again exactly that hormonal axis, but essentially the progesterone holds things at bay and calms things down a little bit. And the lack of ovulation stops those big spikes and waves in the in the cycle to help with the symptoms. So the combined oral contraceptive is a useful one. The mini pill is a useful one. Lots of other progestogens, so things like norethisterone. And, and it's unlikely the GP, you know, we talked in previous episodes about the gonadotrophin releasing hormone analogs, the injections. I think they wouldn't really be starting that in, in primary care. That's definitely something that would be done in secondary care. Mm. So from that initial consultation, you can expect to have a discussion about symptoms, an impression of what you and the doctor think might be going on, have had a talk about what your priorities would be in terms of initial care and long-term care, including things like fertility. Some initial investigations, things like gentle swabs and also a pelvic examination, particularly important, and that would then guide future management. Does the GP want to refer you to someone to have a closer look at your cervix? Do they want to refer you to somewhere like the sexual health clinic to have you know, additional testing or contact tracing? Or do they want to refer you to a gynecologist in a secondary care hospital, be it a district hospital or indeed something like an endometriosis centre? They might be able to make that judgment straight away, but probably they're going to instigate a trial of treatment with pain relief, potentially some hormonal medications, and see you again in a few weeks or months time and see how the symptoms are going. Actually, if Jasmine started pain relief, if she started the contraceptive pill because she wasn't planning a family in the near future and that settled all her symptoms down entirely then she probably doesn't at that stage at least need a referral to secondary care why don't you take a break grab a snack or go get hydrated and we will be back in 15 seconds right Okay. And what if she actually wants, um, is concerned about her fertility? So say she doesn't want to get on the pill and obviously she can't get on the, like you mentioned, GPs probably wouldn't offer you the GNRH um, Mm. analogs. So what would be in terms of being referred to secondary care for probably further investigations Mm. or further treatment that would help her regarding maybe her fertility? How would she go about this? Absolutely. So, so subfertility is certainly one of the symptoms of endometriosis that the GP would ask about. And it's not something that you might have thought of. They'll probably ask you things like, have you ever tried for pregnancy in the past? Have you ever been pregnant in the past? When you did fall pregnant, how long did it take you to fall pregnant? And beyond 12 months is, is definitely unusual. And that would indicate perhaps endometriosis is a little bit more likely. Of course, as we previously talked about, there are lots of other causes of subfertility put together with painful periods, pain in between periods, and taking a long time to fall pregnant. I think, again, the diagnosis is becoming more, more apparent, at least. They're probably then, if fertility was the main priority, 
they would be more likely to refer you to the fertility services, perhaps, than straight away to an endometriosis specialist. As you know, the endometriosis specialist, we're specializing, we're making a diagnosis, we're treating it by excision if possible. The fertility doctor's priority is to get you pregnant. As part of their investigation, a laparoscopy, if they think you've got endometriosis, will probably make up uh, uh, some of that process to look at the tubal function. So if they say, well, you've got painful periods, you've got painful sex, you've got subfertility, is it likely that endometriosis could be a cause? Well, yes, it is. How should we go about getting to the bottom of it? Well, let's do a laparoscopy in the dye test, which we've mentioned before, to see if the tubes are open up. And on top of just seeing whether the tubes are open up, we can see if there's endometriosis. And we can potentially treat it if it's there, because we know treating the endometriosis can have a, a positive effect on, on future fertility. What we haven't talked about in all this is something that will probably happen between the two stages, and that's a pelvic ultrasound scan. Again, depending on what the GP found, they may or may not refer to that straight away. It might be a second appointment if treatment hasn't worked, but it's definitely something that's going to happen relatively early on in the process. We know from the, you know, we've talked about this uh, no end, but the, the all-party parliamentary group found that on average, what was it, 58% of people have visited the GP more than 10 times. Yes. Um, before they got a diagnosis of endometriosis, which is which is ludicrous. And, and these investigations, I'm not saying everyone should be referred to secondary care after the first appointment, because that actually probably is a little bit premature for a lot of people. Some people can be, but for a lot of people, it wouldn't be appropriate. But over two or three, we really should be getting to the bottom of this. And if it's not better, then I think secondary care is definitely the direction that things need to go in. So the ultrasound scan is useful. We know full well that endometriosis cannot be diagnosed on an ultrasound scan. Yeah. You cannot rule it out, I should say. What we can see, however, are cysts that could be very likely to be endometriomas. And actually, an ultrasound is pretty good at characterizing endometriomas if they're there. They've got a, quite a characteristic, specific appearance. It's not always right. And occasionally, the cysts are actually something else. But it's pretty good at, at seeing them. And the other thing the scan can sometimes find, and this is hugely dependent on who's doing the scan, what kind of scanning machine it is and, and what they're looking for specifically, you know, how the referral is made in terms of the priorities of the sonographer. Sometimes they're looking for one thing, but actually the, the referral very specifically, we want to look for a rectovaginal nodule, for example, and they didn't know that because the referral didn't include that information. But you can occasionally see deep, deep infiltrating disease or evidence of deep infiltrating disease on ultrasound scan. Not always. And again, it's less of a good marker. So an ultrasound would be useful. It can help rule in endometriosis, but it certainly can't rule out endometriosis. Could also look for other things. If there were fibroids, if there was a, a polyp inside the womb, we know that the bleeding in between the periods is, is a whole nother, nother thing. And if the swabs were normal, the GP might want to think about investigating um, through secondary care with a test called a hysteroscopy. So that's a tiny little camera that goes in through the womb. A lot of people would have had that if they've experienced irregular bleeding, particularly heavy bleeding, or indeed as part of a fertility investigative process. So a hysteroscopy, which can usually be done with you wide awake. It's an outpatient procedure, involves a speculum examination like a smear. And it's a tiny little camera that just gently goes inside the womb and has a careful look and sees if there are any polyps and the endometrium looks healthy. That, of course, I should emphasize, is not a test for endometriosis, and it's not able to diagnose it. But if there's particular bleeding between the periods that's, a, that, that, that's your main symptom, that's probably the direction things are going to be going in. And does an MRI scan um, make a difference? So I know that some people have been diagnosed with um, deep infiltrating endometriosis, like on the bladder or on the bowel mm -hmm. with MRI. So is this something that people should be considering 
as like a form of diagnosis as well or as a way to diagnose as well? Absolutely. MRI certainly has a place and it can be a very useful test. And we do a lot of MRIs in secondary care when we're looking for exactly as you described, deep infiltrating endometriosis, particularly in unusual places, depending on symptoms. You know, we'd we'd look closely at the bladder, but we'd always look closely at absolutely everything. We have fantastic radiologists able to interpret our MRIs. The MRI is something that it's very unlikely your GP would request. It's something that's going to happen a little bit later on in the process. So I think by now, we'd expect Jasmine to have got into secondary care and they probably would have asked her exactly the same symptoms as the GP. They would have gone through things quite specifically. Hopefully there would have been a symptom diary along the way somewhere as well. Depending on the hospital and depending on the environment, Jasmine might have gone to her local gynecology hospital, which may or may not be an endometriosis centre just by virtue of where she lives, or she might have been referred to a more distant centre if the local one wasn't an endometriosis centre if the GP suspected deep infiltrating disease. If they didn't, if they just suspected it was more likely to be peritoneal endometriosis, then it's totally appropriate and reasonable that Jasmine's looked after in a district hospital, provided that consultant still makes the same assessments and and on their balance of probabilities, if they think it's deep infiltrating disease, then it would be reasonable for them to discuss with the endometriosis centre. So you can sometimes, and what we know does happen quite frequently, is patients are referred to a a smaller centre, which are incredibly capable and good at looking at superficial endometriosis and endometriomas, but perhaps haven't got quite the expertise and particularly important what we call the multidisciplinary team. So it's us working together with the colorectal surgeons, the pain team, the urologists, our specialist nurse in terms of operating on deep infiltrating disease. So the first person Jasmine might see could either be a consultant in the department And they are usually the the most experienced surgeons there. It could be a registrar, so someone like me. And it could be different people, actually. So I'm uh, towards the end of my training, and I specialize in endometriosis, and that's what my career is going to involve later on. Some registrars, you see, might be a little bit more junior in their training and aren't necessarily experts in endometriosis, but it's definitely something that we all know and experience. And we work really closely with the consultants. So if you were to see a registrar, I would not be worried at all. They're going to ask you the right questions. They're going to go through the case in detail with the consultant afterwards and talk all about management plans. So those are the sorts of people... The other system that sometimes works, particularly in endometriosis centers, is that you'll see the endometriosis specialist nurse first, who is an absolute expert on endometriosis. And, and she's incredibly experienced, he or she, I beg your pardon. And they're going to ask you lots of specific questions. They might well give you a, a questionnaire to fill out. You might have a questionnaire to fill out before you've got the appointment. So here's the appointment. Here's your letter. Here's a questionnaire. Bring it with you to the appointment. It's asking a variety of questions about priorities, about history, about symptoms to try and get to the bottom of what might be going on. In that appointment, they're probably going to do an examination again, even if the GP's done one already. What I would say is in slightly more experienced hands, you know, gynecologists are a little bit more used to doing pelvic examinations than GPs, because of course, GPs do absolutely everything. They, you know, GPs are probably far more experienced at doing neurological examinations and ear, nose and throat examinations. But obviously, we're particularly used to doing pelvic examinations and to see if we can elicit any of those things the GP saw. We will likely have had an ultrasound to look at before um, the patients come to see us, in which case we can draw some conclusions on whether there's cysts on the ovaries, whether there's evidence of deep infiltrating disease or scar tissue on the ultrasound scan. We may or may not have some blood tests. One thing that people have often heard of is the CA125. I can't remember whether you discussed that before. Have we, Tenny? Yes, we have talked yeah, about so CA125. Absolutely. So CA125 raised for all sorts of reasons. If you were to type it into Dr. Google, you find that it's raised in ovarian yeah. cancer, which isn't the thing we're worried about with endometriosis, but it is often raised in endometriosis. It can be raised actually quite high in endometriosis. And you might find if you've got an ultrasound scan which shows 
quotes unquote, a complex cyst, which endometriomas are. They can be. They can have little septations down the middle. So it's a cyst divided up into lots of parts. Uh, they can look a little unusual. And the CA125 is raised. Jasmine might actually find herself not referred to an endometriosis specialist, but as a first port of call, referred to a gynecological cancer specialist. More often than not, just to rule it out, to say, look, we've had a really close look at this. We've discussed the history. We think this is overwhelmingly likely to be endometriosis. We don't need to worry. Because as you can imagine, the first thing to do is to rule out anything really sinister. Endometriosis is a dreadful disease, but ovarian cancer is potentially a more impactful disease in the short term. So it's definitely something you want to rule out. But more often than not, it's not in someone at Jasmine's age. So she shouldn't worry at all if she has a positive CA125, almost certainly due to endometriosis, not anything else. So going back to secondary care, they're going to do the investigations again. This is where the MRI would probably happen. After the initial consultation, say, well, look, we discussed that you've got symptoms of dyspyrunia, so painful intercourse. You've got symptoms of dyskesia, pain going to the lavatory. I've felt some nodularity there, uh, or I've seen it on ultrasound scan. To be honest, if all of those are fulfilled, you, you may not even need the MRI because you pretty much got to the bottom of it. But yeah. depending on how the hospital works, an MRI would definitely be useful. What we're looking at more often with the MRI is not to make a diagnosis in and of itself, because actually with all of those qualifications, we're pretty confident that it's likely to be defibrillating endometriosis. We're looking together with the radiologists, together with the colorectal surgeons and possibly the urologists if it's near the bladder or the ureters, the tube from the kidney to the bladder. We're thinking about how we're going to tackle this surgically whether we need to do it as a joint case with gynecologists and colorectal surgeons, whether we're going to need to do things like um, removing rectovaginal nodules. So we talked about the options in previous episodes, shaving off the back of the vagina and the uterus, leaving the rectum intact, removing a small segment, a, a disc resection from the rectum, or indeed removing a larger segment and either reattaching those two ends and anastomosis or giving the bowel a rest as you might need to in some cases, much more rarely with a stoma, which is a small colostomy bag. So that's the idea of doing the MRI to help guide our future management rather than necessarily getting a diagnosis. But sometimes we need to, to get to the bottom of things. And sometimes someone's got lots of symptoms, but actually haven't been able to feel a nodule and the MRI can say, ah, well, hold on, there's a nodule a little bit higher up and you couldn't feel yeah. it because it was higher up rather than being in the rectum, it was more on the sigmoid colon. Or indeed, and one thing we haven't talked about here is symptoms outside the pelvis, which we know are much more common than, than previously thought. And we can see, uh, is there thickening of the diaphragm on one side? Is there anything else going on that could explain why you're getting short of breath or, heaven forbid, you know, more serious symptoms, collapse lungs and chest pain during menstruation? So MRIs are definitely useful in that respect as well. Okay. Wow. Amazing. So now that Jasmine has gotten to secondary care and she's probably had a, you know, consultation to figure out what the next steps of her treatment mm. would be, say she's also had surgery to figure it, to figure out what exactly it is, what should yeah. she expect after surgery? So should she be expecting, first of all, what would she expect as like the recovery time with or without the colostomy bag? What are the kind of like reco recovery times she should be expecting? When would, do you think she should be able to go back to school or work? And also, what should she expect after this? So she should be expecting no more pain or, you know, what should she be expecting? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, again, it's all very individual and it's going to depend exactly what was done and what was involved. One thing I should mention and, and remind me, we need to answer this question about what to expect. But in between those investigations, the MRI and surgery, we might need to start some different treatment. We mentioned that hormonal treatment um, 
isn't going to make endometriosis disappear. It can help symptoms. What it is particularly useful for is an, as an adjunct to surgery to try and stabilize things, shrink things down, make them less inflammatory when the time comes for an operation. So right. what we might say is we've seen this deep infiltrating disease on MRI. We think you've got it because you've got all these symptoms and we've done the examination and found what we think might be deep infiltrating disease. We don't know 100% because we haven't found it yet. As you know, the diagnosis is to, to get a bit of tissue at a laparoscopy and look yeah. at it under the microscope, but we can be very suspicious this is endometriosis. Would we be sensible to rush straight in and do surgery or actually, would it be more prudent to use something like the combined oral contraceptive pill, running it back to back to try and stabilize the endometriosis and optimize things for the operation? Or indeed the GnRH analog. So these hormone blocking injections that we talked about before that um, simulate the menopause is entirely reversible when they're stopped, but it stops the ovaries producing the estrogen and progesterone, which drives the the endometriosis in an effort to try and stabilize it, shrink it down. Usually the happy side effect of these treatments is the symptoms get better in the meantime. Of course, other side effects include the menopausal changes, those hot flushes, mood swings, etc. So we occasionally give a little bit of estrogen ab back on there. So just to add, after your MRI, potentially after the initial consultation, sometimes after that result has come back and they've had a discussion looking at the pictures together with various members of the team, it might be recommended. And we often talk to both patient and GP at the same time. If you've got letters from the second UK, you'll often note that it's addressed to the GP saying, this is what we found. This is what we recommend for Jasmine. Would you yeah. kindly commence treatment with GNRH, Zolodex once a month or, or, or whatever else it might be? Going back to the original question about uh, surgery and what to expect, very variable depending on what surgery was done. If we are doing a diagnostic laparoscopy, we would always intend, if there was endometriosis, to treat it at the same time. And this is why it's so important to do all the investigations first and have a really good conversation with Jasmine before the procedure about what her priorities are, what would she like done, and what wouldn't she like done. Sometimes we do a laparoscopy and really it's a scoping exercise to see just how tricky is this going to be surgically. If Jasmine says, look, if it's a straightforward procedure, if you can do excision of endometriosis from the peritoneum, if you can remove my endometriomas, excise them, and if you can do a rectal shave or attempt a rectal shave, then let's go for it. What I really don't want at this time of my life or whatever else, you know, uh, for various reasons, I don't want the risk of having a larger bowel resection. Of course, we can't guarantee that if ever we're operating near the bowel, it's... Yeah incredibly rare but even the most benign procedures even a diagnostic laparoscopy can have complications this is why diagnosis of endometriosis is so tricky because it's quite a big threshold to have that operation but but we can sensibly say if the surgery looks like it's going to be really tricky and we've got a high risk of having a, a a bowel resection then actually the prudent thing to do if you've had that conversation with jasmine already is to say right we'll stop the surgery here, we'll do what we can that's straightforward, and actually we'll have a chat with Jasmine in the cool light of day and say, look, this is what we found, these are the possibilities. Shall we plan to do this, yes or no? Shall we plan to do this now? Shall we continue medical treatment, or shall actually we see how we get on and potentially review this in six months, a year, depending on what your symptoms are. You know, if Jasmine has a fantastic holiday booked and she's going on a honeymoon or something, she might say, actually, you know what, I don't want surgery now. I don't want the risk of a colostomy now. Let's just hold off and, and, and think about looking at things later. So that's why it's so important to have very individualized treatment depending on the patient. Okay. If we're just doing a straightforward diagnostic laparoscopy, I say straightforward, if all goes well and we remove superficial endometriosis, we would expect the patient to hopefully go home the same day. 
if we're not dealing with dealing with deep infiltrating disease, if there weren't any complications during the procedure, if the procedure was done relatively early on in the day, if it's eight o'clock at night when you're coming back from recovery, it's probably unlikely you're going to be going home that day. But for a lot of people, that would be home the same day, um, up and about the day after, and about a week to two weeks off work, depending on things. In this day and age of working from home, I think more people would probably start to get itchy feet and think, well, maybe I can do a little bit. But what's important is having some change perhaps in working patterns. If people are commuting, that's really what's bad. And you find the day starts to feel very long after three or four hours. And actually, if you're working from home, you can then say, right, I'm gonna have a rest, I'm gonna stop. If you're working an hour on a train away, it's then the last four hours a day is a real slog. So can you have a change in working pattern where you're working from home more often or you're working shorter days, reduce physical activity if, if your job is fairly physical? So there are various amendments you might want to make. But after the first couple of weeks, you'll probably be pretty much back to normal unless you had a really busy day. After six weeks or so, I would expect the vast majority of people to be pretty much entirely back to normal after a relatively straightforward diagnostic laparoscopy. Of course, it is a little bit variable, and occasionally there are complications or reasons why things might take a bit longer. The more surgery we're doing, and when we're talking about deep infiltrating disease, it's going to take a bit longer to recover from. One of the joys of laparoscopy, and the reason why we like it so much, is because recovery is much faster than with more extensive surgery through a scar in the tummy, what we call a laparotomy. So we're probably not going to go home the same day, but the day after is very reasonable. So one or two nights in hospital is usually what to expect. The sort of criteria we're looking at to getting someone home is being up and around again. The pain's reasonably well controlled on tablet pain relief. So you're not needing liquid morphine and stronger things like that, which might not be so sustainable to take at home. And importantly, the bladder and the bowel have started working again, depending on what was done. Often a catheter is put in during the operation if it's a longer procedure. Not usually necessarily if it's a short procedure, but if it's a longer procedure, it is. And occasionally, combination of the anesthetic, surgery, catheterization, the bladder can go to sleep a little bit afterwards. And the bowel, importantly, we want to make sure that the function's returning. Doesn't necessarily mean going for a poo while you're in hospital. You know, you have bowel preparation before the operation. So actually, it can be waiting a few days for still to start work its way through. But passing wind and things and comfortably and, and, and no risk of any infection, temperatures have all been fine, that sort of thing will be reassuring such that we can get home again. It's going to be taking it easy for a little bit longer afterwards with a, a more extensive operation and, you know, at least two weeks off work, two to four weeks, six weeks, potentially, depending on what sort of job you do and how well the recovery is going is, is, is pretty much par for the course. In the more rare scenario where we need to do with the colorectal surgeons a, a colostomy, um, or indeed it was converted from a laparoscopy to a laparotomy, which is a larger scar in the tummy, which most likely is a side-to-side -side cut, like a cesarean scar that people are probably more familiar with. Um, yeah. Occasionally, it could be an up-and-down cut, which is between the tummy button going down towards the pelvis. Recovery from them, again, isn't too bad. With endometriosis, usually we've got young, fit women who are well otherwise and well-motivated to get up and about and recover well. Of course, these sorts of operations done on people with other medical conditions who are slightly more infirm can certainly knock you for six. And you can imagine if a much older woman or, or man was having a, a scar on the tummy, it can be a really big thing to recover from. But actually being young, fit and well, we encourage people to get up and about as soon as they can, because that reduces the risk of getting blood clots, which is one of the complications of surgery, particularly surgery in the pelvis, in the legs and the lungs, infections in the, in the wound itself, infections in the chest, 
all those sorts of things. So it is important that you're, you're able to get up and about. And the most significant factor in that is really good, effective pain relief. So don't be brave after an operation. Keep yourself comfortable. Don't test how the pain is going, because if you stop the pain relief, it will be painful. So yeah. keep going. Paracetamol, ibuprofen, again, very safe to take in combination. No one's saying paracetamol, ibuprofen are going to take all the pain away from a big operation, but it does reduce the amount of extra things you need. And the important thing is, rather than going straight for the strong codeine, dihydrocodeine, morphine, which all have side effects, constipation, nausea, drowsiness, all those sorts of things, use the paracetamol ibuprofen first. You might well still need the, ibuprofen, the, the, the morphine medication, but actually you'll need less of it. So it's uh, sensible to start on the medication that has very, very few side effects. But you know what? I'm pleasantly surprised by how well people do after endometriosis surgery, honestly, mainly because of the demographic we're operating on. I think it's just because when you've been in so much pain for so long yeah. and you get an opportunity to, you know, have some of that pain relief, then trust me, you're yeah, up and about and really, yeah. yeah I think you're right. They're used to it. You're used to it. One of the difficulties is, and one of the anxieties often is, when you've got symptoms after an operation, what is pain from the operation itself? Because it, it, inevitably, with almost all surgery, you feel worse before you feel better. Yep. You've had a general anesthetic, you've had a cut in the tummy, you've had, even if you've only got small incisions on the tummy, which is the aim we're, we're trying with laparoscopy, there's a lot more work done deeper down. So it's going to be painful afterwards. And it's when you're recovering, what is pain from the surgery? What is pain from sort of newly forming inflammation that's happening as a result of surgery? Yeah. And what is residual pain from any endometriosis that might still be there? We hope none. So don't be disheartened. Don't be afraid if actually symptoms are taking some time to settle down. And there can still be some pain there weeks or even potentially months after the operation. Doesn't necessarily mean this is still the endo causing pain. It could just be that delayed healing, that ongoing inflammation in the pelvis, in a pelvis that's already been affected by inflammation for years previously with endo. So it's already sensitized to experiencing more pain than someone else. So don't be disheartened. Okay. Well, thank you. I was just going to say my last question for the day and for the series is what is the final advice for Jasmine and anyone else that is like her that has just, you know, whether being in the process of being diagnosed mm -hmm. or has already been diagnosed or has already received treatment and is just trying to figure out life living with endometriosis. What would you say is your final advice for women like this in this situation? So tricky. And I think you probably, Tenny, having you know, had endometriosis and been through the journey yourself is probably a better place to, to, to answer that and give advice. But I think don't feel you have to put up with it. There is help out there. There is, as you said at the beginning, an army of people who work on endometriosis. It is a sorely underfunded condition. It's both in research, both in prioritization of, of care. There aren't enough doctors and nurses working in it, but there are people, there is help out there. It can be frustrating waiting for us. Waiting lists with COVID at the moment are abominable and it's disheartening every time I talk to someone we book for surgery because we just don't know when we're going to be able to do it, but we will do it. And in the meantime, there are treatments that we know that work. Um, everyone's an individual. And again, don't feel you need to jump on a bandwagon either. Don't feel you have to do anything that you have been told by X, Y, or Z. You will find in yourself a combination of things that works for you, whether that's hormonal treatments, whether that's pain relief, 
whether that's operations, depending on, on, on how you're accessing that, or whether that's alternative therapies, diet changes, psychological therapies to think about pain, all those kind of things, there will be something that will help. So don't feel you have to suffer in silence. Oh, thank you so much. I was also going to say that to anyone out there, just educate yourself because you because this is a chronic condition, there's so much. And like we've said throughout the series, it's, it requires like an individual approach and there's so many things you can do to feel better and improve your quality of life. So educate yourself, be confident and bold and, you know, talk about your symptoms, what you're experiencing with your GP or your consultant, and don't be afraid to ask a lot of questions it's sometimes it's scary to, you know, go to the doctors and, you know, say, this is how I'm feeling, or this is, I don't understand this because, you know, there's time and all of that, but always make sure to ask questions as much as you can understand why you're getting the treatment approach that is being given mm-hmm. to you. And just always remember that you're not alone and there is hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. In terms of talking about things, you know, involving friends and family, loved ones, partners, all the rest of it can certainly help because you're definitely not alone. Yes, definitely. So this is the end of Endo 101. (laughs) I know, 2021 series. Amazing, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, quite right. We'll do a post-COVID series in 2021. Yes, yeah, exactly. But this has been really, really great. And once again, I'll say thank you, Tom, for being doing this with me. Don't mention it. I really enjoyed it. And I, I just sincerely hope it's been helpful for everyone listening. Yeah, thank you. And with this, we have come to the end of our Endo 101 series. End of our Endo 101 series. <laughs> I hope you have learned a lot from this episode as well as the entire series. If you haven't listened to other episodes, please make sure you do. There is so much information, so much knowledge that has been put into these episodes and I hope you really learn from them. If you enjoyed this series, I would love to know. Your feedback is very valuable to me and it helps to know what you would like to hear and how you want to be supported. Please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. You can also follow the Instagram page of Chelsea Center for Minimal Invasive Gynecology at ccmig.london, where Tom shares a lot of relevant and helpful information on endometriosis. I want to say a huge, huge thank you to Dr. Tom for his invaluable knowledge on this series. And to everyone who has taken the time out to listen, I am very grateful. Till next time, my name is Teniola and remember, you are not defined by Endo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to come back next time.